gotta put this over it. Nope, nope, that's not it. God dang it. Thomas, where's the play button? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the live guys welcome back to the live period uh today we've got our good friend head coach of university of maine richard Barron. how are we doing today doing great thank you guys i appreciate you coming on uh today for those of you that are listening later is wednesday uh it's the day after the election at uh oh at about one o'clock in the afternoon on east coast time so really nothing is going on like pretty much everybody nobody's looking at their televisions uh, doing a lot of self-reflecting, reading. I'm sure a lot of people are reading a lot of books right now. So, uh, so yeah, nothing happening. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're gonna dive into uh, we're gonna dive into Coach Barron's story here today, um, which is uh, is is a fascinating story. That it, it's funny as as good of friends as Coach Barron and I have become. Uh, over the years, because for some reason, when he got that job, he decided I was somebody that was worth talking to. And uh, so we've become good friends. And uh, there's a lot of his story, though, that he and I have never really talked about. So I'm excited about this today to really kind of dive into some of this. Um, I'm excited for you guys to really hear, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, I'm excited for you to hear how Coach Barron's brain works because uh, it, it's, it's one of the, the most endearing things to me about just having conversations with him about life. Uh, it doesn't have to have anything to do with basketball. And, and I feel like, and I mean this sincerely, Coach, I come away from every one of our conversations feeling like I've learned something, uh, which I think is a rare relationship to have in your life. Um, and so, so I, do, I do genuinely appreciate that. So we're going we're gonna to dive into his story. But first, we kind of wanted, and this was Thomas's idea, we wanted to really just have you talk about Maine. Maine is a state, Maine in regards to the town that your school is in, a little bit about your school, just because I, I think uh, in this world where we have, what are we up to, 357 Division I teams, um, you know, there's, there's traditional names, there's traditional states, there's traditional areas, and, and Maine is maybe not somebody uh, that, that people immediately think of when they talk about a Division I program, but uh, me having some relationships with some players that you have, uh, and, and hearing how much they love it there. And, you know, you constantly talking about just how special that place is, uh, maybe for our listeners, you can, you can just kind of tell us a little bit about what is going on up in Maine. Yeah. So, so first of all, Maine is a, Maine's a big state geographically with a small population. So a lot of land mass, uh, but only about 2 million people live in the state. So, you know, Right now, that means uh, we have four electoral, electoral college, uh, you know, votes. Split up into congressional districts for those of you right. civics people yeah. out there. One of the yeah. ones like Nebraska, where Thomas is, where the, the vote gets split. Um, we have uh, three in the south and one in the north here that, that's still being decided, uh, hasn't been declared yet. So um, Maine's an independent place, it, you know, a, a little bit like New Hampshire and a little bit like Vermont. Um, you know, there, it's it's got a... a in some ways, almost a libertarian sort of vibe to it. You know, it's a, a don't tread on me kind of going back a, a long time. 
historically, Maine was, um, was French. And so uh, in the War of 1812, uh, we ended up having a big you know, split. We, the, the United States won that war and the French were told they could move further north into Quebec or they could go help settle Louisiana. And so a lot of people don't realize that the people who helped settle Louisiana came from Acadia. Acadia National Park is a beautiful place here where Bar Harbor is, um, Cadillac Mountain. You could Google that and see some of the you know, beautiful coastline of Maine. Well, Acadia, if you say it fast, kind of turns into Cajun. So Acadia, Cajun, and so that's where Cajuns come from. So I like to say, I don't know how facts to back this up, but that they learned to eat lobster up here. When they got down there, all they could eat were crawdads. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's the way I, I kind of look at it. But there is a lot of connections, a lot of history here. Um, Bangor, Maine is where I live. Bangor uh, was the wealthiest city in the United States in the early 1800s, because this is where all the shipping came, all the commerce that went to Europe. Uh, Maine is was the closest place, the, the, the nearest port, as they made that voyage. And so all the shipping captains and magnets had big, huge mansions that looked over the river, a uh, river that you know that I, I'd like to uh, go up and down on our boat. Yes, sir. Uh, but uh, yeah, this guy will literally FaceTime me from his boat, ripping up and down the river, fishing. It's uh, it's definitely a different conversation than than I have with a lot of other coaches. Well, that boat, you know, is kind of like was like our harbor, and so a lot of commerce uh, came through Bangor at that time, and so it, it really was at that time it was a, um, a a bustling almost seaport, even though it wasn't quite coastal. Um, and so now, now we're just the place where all the contrails go over, you know, as flight <laughs> planes fly. So Bangor is one of those places that you see on the map when you come back from, from Europe or yeah. one of those, those trips, you fly right over. And uh, as we've spent a lot of time over the last, uh, you know, 10 years recruiting Europe, uh, European players, I've always felt like if I could just parachute out, I could get home a lot quicker right? <laughs> having to go to Detroit or DC or Philly to fly back up to Bangor. Just let me out right here. I'll, I'll take, you know, take it from here. I haven't figured out a way to do that yet, but uh, I'm still, still thinking that maybe one day I'll be able just to, to hop out, you know, as we, we come across, but um, it's a, it's a great place, really, you know, good people down to earth people and they love basketball. And so, um, although a lot of people know us for hockey because we won a couple of national championships in the, in the 90s um, in hockey, uh, the state itself is really a big basketball state. So we have a lot of small high schools that when we have our state tournaments, those towns are deserted. You could go loot and get away with it because there's nobody there. They all come to either Bangor, Augusta, or Portland to watch these state tournament games. So, mm-hmm. um small schools it's not like you're watching uh you know the the huge seven footers you know banging out although occasionally we get those guys but uh you know for the most part it's just communities who love supporting their teams and one of the other things that was really unique about Maine is they had such a strong tradition and love for women's basketball and so that's what drew me here I was the you know recruited to be the women's basketball coach and uh, I one of the things that you know, having been, um, I was the head coach at Princeton and then went to Baylor and from Baylor to NC State. And so at, you know, being at a place where we had all these resources or even being on the road, maybe, and, and, and saw the resources, but never felt like maybe um, what we were doing meant as much to the community as, as you know, it meant to us as coaches and athletes. And, um, 
that's not an uncommon situation to be in in women's athletics, unfortunately. It's changing and it's improving and, and we need to keep doing work in that area. But at Maine, that wasn't the issue. Women's basketball was huge. Women's basketball outdrew the men. Um, you know, the tradition were, was, was very strong. They'd just fallen on hard times. And so I saw that an, op an opportunity to go somewhere where what I did was relevant. And, um, you know, that's, that's what led me to Maine. Uh, I'd never, I'd been to the state once before, and that was to see a women's final four in division three, many years earlier when Washington university won while playing at the university of Southern Maine, who was the host school. I'd come up to watch that because that was my first year coaching women's basketball at the division three level. And I wanted to see what the best teams look like. I wanted to, I wanted to have a goal, you know, an aspiration and I needed to see those teams play to know what I needed to go recruit. How could I be competitive and, and, you know, try to get my team to that level. So that was my first and only trip to Maine until I came up for my on-campus interview. So, yeah, you, you were uh, born in Tennessee. Yeah. Born and, in Florida. We moved oh, to Florida okay. when I was 12. So I went to high school in Tennessee. Okay. And then you went to college though in Ohio, right? At like at Kenyon. I, I went to Kenyon, okay. which is, uh, you know, had some great basketball players and coaches. Uh, I just, not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was a guy, uh, you know, like Shaka Smart, you know, came to Kenyon, uh, went to Kenyon after me, uh, great coach and was a really good player. Um, you know, guys like John Rinka, who is one of the greatest college basketball players of all time. He was uh, on the par, on par with like a Pete Maravich at the time as a college basketball player, incredible shooter and scorer. Um, you know, some great players came through Kenyon, uh, but I just wasn't one of them. I, <laughs> I, was, I, I thought I was probably better than I was, but uh, I, what I ended up being was a, a good practice player. Now, when you, I know, I know you were coaching high school and, and you went back to Tennessee then and became an assistant at Sewanee, which was D3. Is that right? right? Sewanee's D3. Okay. And, uh, um, when you took over that program, you know, the, I, I think the the trend through, well, not I think, I know the trend of your head coaching career uh, has always been, you, you've taken over the rebuilds, right? Yeah. Like you, you've taken over the program that, that has been struggling and, um, you know, every, every place you have been as a head coach, uh, you've ended up winning the league. Uh, yep. at some point. And, and so when you took over Swanee and, and kind of, you know, saw this, this rebuild that you had to go, I mean, even at the division three level and a division three women's basketball, like how, how daunting was that to look at it and say, okay, I want to get to here. I've been a high school assistant. I've been a D three assistant and now I'm the head coach. And now I've got to try and <laughs> flip this yeah. thing around. What, how did you kind of wrap your head around that? Well, I think at the time, so at that point I was maybe what, 26 years old. So I was this assistant coach for four years on the men's side and we had four winning and improved seasons and, and really did well, recruited some academic All-Americans and Rhodes Scholars, just tremendous kids. Um, and, you know, I was trying to climb the ladder and, and sending out resumes and applying for, for jobs and, um, you know, it, it's competitive and uh, it wasn't happening as fast as I would have wanted to. And so I decided that I was going to go um, start work on a graduate degree at the University of Virginia uh, with their business school. And, and one of my um, mentors was Terry Holland, still is. 
and so I, I thought with that opportunity, I might be able to get into the NBA or, or you know, maybe the administrative side of, of college athletics. Had um, you gone over to Europe yet at this point um, and done that? that thing with the, the sons. Okay. No, that, that came after when I was at Princeton. So, but, but it was through Virginia, um, you know, through Mark Ivoroni that I got to do that. So um, I'm sitting there, you know, just kind of banging my head up against the wall and I decide I'm going to go to, to Virginia. And at, at my going away party, literally, you know, Bon Voyage sort of, you know, he's a jolly good fellow cake and all that stuff. The AD tells me that the women's basketball coach just resigned. Why don't I stick around and coach the women's team for a year? And so by the end of the sort of party, it was, you know, something I'm actually thinking about. And I, I called Coach Holland and he thought, because Title IX was really be becoming important, he thought experience on the administrative side with women's athletics would be good for me. It would help me and, and, and make me better um, suited for the, kind of that next step. So I took the women's job, the head job, as an interim I was just going to do it for a year and then I was going to continue on my career path. I was going to help the school out and move on. And um, we had a winning season. It was the first winning season in 10 years. And we, we beat a top 10 team in the country, uh, you know, with those kids. And we had two uh, players who ended up uh, being all American. And uh, one of them coaches uh, with the Connecticut son now and mm. is a, a longtime coach. And so that, that was just kind of a special year and we brought in some really good recruits and, and I thought, well, you know what, I, maybe I could stick around for another year and then another year. And then I was kind of at that point where I had to decide to go and um, some players, uh, you know, talked me into tearfully staying and I stayed for two more years. So I gave up on the business school at UVA um, dream and just committed to being a women's basketball coach. And then, um, Princeton came along. And so uh, I, ironically, Davidson is my kind of family school. I did not go to Davidson. I chose to go to Kenyon instead, but everybody in my family, my cousins, my, my sister, my brother, my dad, my uncle, um, my high school girlfriend, everybody went to Davidson. So there were, there were two times when I interviewed for the Davidson women's basketball job. One time is when I was offered the Princeton job and took it before Davidson made a decision. And the second was um, the year before I took the job at Maine. And so, um, you know, I, I look back and I think how, you know, how many times have I, you know, said <laughs> no to Davidson? I think they're going to, you know, they're, I'm never going to get another chance there. They're not going to let me on campus. But, um, but that was, you know, such a strong pull. But there was always this kind of wanting to be my own person, wanting to be, make my own decisions or go my own path. And, and so even choosing Kenyon um, so that I could, you know, play college basketball instead of going somewhere solely for the academics. Um, that, that's kind of always been part of, of how I made decisions and, and uh, it really shaped how I ended up coaching on the women's side. And, and um, I, had, I had a lot of arrogance when I did it. I had a lot of, uh, I, I don't know if it was intentionally, uh, and I know it wasn't intentional, but it, but um, chauvinistic you know ideas about coaching women and you know I grew up uh you, you know so this is mid 90s but um I grew up not respecting women's sports the same way we do now and I was humbled very much by not just this is really important not just 
how competitive and how talented women were, but how gracious they were and how forgiving they were in letting me into their community. Pat Summit, you know, seemingly adopted me. I mean, she was so generous with her time and I happened to be from Knoxville and, and you know, there were connections there, but she didn't owe me anything yet. She gave me so much of her time and, um, you know, so many others did too, you know, Tara Vanderbeer, you know, for example, what, I mean, everybody on the women's side, they, they didn't, they should have shunned me and, and they didn't, they accepted me. And so I, I, I really appreciate that. And um, it, my experience coaching women not only made me a better coach, it made me a better person. And I'm so glad that I didn't get the opportunities that I wanted. All right. It's kind of like the Garth Brooks song, right? Sometimes <laughs> thank God for unanswered prayers. Right. I, I got to do that every day. Um, you know, because that led, that led me to my wife, who was the softball coach at Princeton, right? That, that led to my children. Um, that led to my experience here at Maine, where I work with some incredibly wonderful people. And um, my life is so much better off because of the things I didn't get that I wanted so bad when I was young. For sure. Coach, I was reading the Washington Post, uh, doing research on you. Uh, watching the Post article from a few years back. And I wanted to pull it up so I didn't mess it up. But you said, I'm, I'm generalizing, but women tend to be more team-oriented than men, less worried about the totem pole, the pecking order, and the idea of being the alpha male. And you you talking about women's basketball, that, that it's almost the same sentiment I had as a college player, as a pro player. Like I looked at women's basketball in a different way and I didn't respect it a lot. Now with my Villianca hoops training the last four or five years, I tell Brandon this all the time, the amount of girls that I train that are talented, that are getting more talented, it, it, it's so enjoyable to coach girls that I never, like old Thomas, college Thomas, young pro Thomas, I'd like, there's no way in my mid thirties, I'm going to be coaching college level girls and enjoying it. But it brings me so much joy. It, it, it's just a different level of respect sometimes, a lot of times. Um, and, and, and it's just awesome. I, I, like you said, I think we're on the same path. Like coaching girls basketball has brought me so much happiness and joy that I never thought it would be like, I have relationships with so many girls, you know, like Thomas, should I wear this prom dress? Thomas, what do I do with, with, with my, my boyfriend? And, all, and it's like, I never thought that'd be cool and, and, and bring me happiness, but it does. And I, I respect you for taking that route because I'm, I'm doing the same thing and it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It, it, it you hit the nail on the head there. It, it's, and, and I learned it not necessarily, it wasn't by design. I was just blessed to have the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I was deserving of the opportunity. Um, I may have, I may have done a decent job with it, but man, I wish I could go back and start again, knowing what I know now, because I learned so much more from my time coaching women than I ever taught them. You know, uh, they made me a much better person, a much better better coach better and also I, I hope a better husband and father too you know that it's it's carried over to other areas of my life so the the I think the like I mentioned before that that trend of the rebuild that trend of uh you taking over a program that you know you it's not like an immediate flip around right this isn't this has never been a process of um you know push the easy button And, you know, you and I talk about a lot of these things in regards to your program now with, you know, how do you rebuild that? Where, where do you look for different ways to get things done? Because you're not going to have, you know, the Baylor and the NC State resources 
right? And and how do you how do you build that? So you know you're you're the head coach at Princeton now, your first Division One head coaching job, and you go and win a share of the the Ivy League title, uh, the the regular season title there, and and then you know you when you left then and went to to Baylor and NC State. I guess what, what were some of the things that maybe like you, when you were an assistant at that high major level, you know, what were some of the things that you really just missed about, um, you know, whether it be the head coach at Suwannee or, you know, head coach at Princeton, just even beyond like being a head coach and in charge of your own program. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, certainly, um, you know, the autonomy of being a head coach is something I had grown accustomed to. So that was, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, you know, being able to be the final decision maker. Um, but there's some, you know, there were some wonderful moments. I learned a lot working, you know, with or for Kim Mulkey and having Leon Barmore, uh, you know, Hall of Famer sitting beside me for one of those years. And, and, um, and I hope I brought some positivity to them. I mean, we, we brought in the number one recruiting class in the country. So certainly left the team that ended up going 40 and 0, right? Sitting right. A, record for wins so I, I I feel good about both my you know accomplishments but I also recognized after a couple of years that that it wasn't it wasn't just a perfect fit you know there were other things that I wanted and and my role at NC State um, was was a little more comfortable because I, I Kelly and John and and then I met uh, Stephanie McCormick and LaTanya uh, when they were there LaTanya Lamont those were people that I worked with so well. And I, I felt like I was a little more of a consigliere, you know, <laughs> um, I was, I was able to, you know, kind of um, be someone with a little bit of experience that was offering suggestions, but I, I didn't do it with a sense of, you know, the pressure of, of owning that decision. Um, but I still missed the, the entrepreneurship that comes with, you know, having your own program. There's a lot of creativity and decision-making outside of just the X's and O's or practice planning that goes with, you know, it's, it's like being the, the CEO of an organization. And so, um, you know, the, the relevance of your opinions when you're, you don't have much opportunity to manage up, there's really just one person you know, versus working with the community and working with the ADs and working, you know, building a vision, right? So I, I, I think those were you know the distinctions I would make, but I learned so much from those those four years stepping back and being in that assistant or associate head coach role. Well, and and I have a feeling, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as well as I know you now, I have a feeling there were probably moments when you're at Baylor, you're at NC State, you've got all the resources in the world, you have the ability for all intents and purposes, kind of snap your fingers and make certain things happen, but you're a you're a problem solver. You know, we, we were talking yesterday that, that you're an ideas guy and you're always trying to be creative in the process. And how can I look at a, at a, at a problem and find a different solution? And I, I feel like your personality also very much lends itself to, um, you know, being at a University of Maine where it's not snap my fingers and make all these things happen, but, but enjoying that process, you know, I think so many times coaches, uh, well, you think about like young coaches that you talk to and they're, they're trying to figure out how can I get, you know, as fast as possible to these, these different echelons of coaching. And when in reality, you know, maybe where they enjoy themselves the most is by, you know, finding 
creative different ways to 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 win basketball games right yeah. and and not just have all the the resources in the world right there at your feet um maybe talk a little bit about just kind of how you know you and your personal life have have um i guess now so for everybody that doesn't know princeton uh as a head coach when wins a, an ivy league title goes on to uh you know the the big 12 and the acc and then back to maine as the head coach uh, of, uh, or not back to Maine, but to Maine as the head coach of the women's program. And again, take over time and rebuild and, you know, putting that together. What did that, what did that kind of feel like in your personal life where you go from the ACC to the America East and, and now we're back into problem solving mode? Yeah. So I think a couple of things, one, you know, almost in answering one of your earlier questions that, you know, going back and looking at those times as a division three coach, um, you wear so many hats, you do, you know, like you are, you know, in some cases, even the, the, the trainer, you're taping ankles, you're, you know, doing laundry, you're the equipment manager, you're sweeping the floor. And, um, you know, so the relationship that I, that, that some of my fondest memories as a coach are things that happen with players off the court had nothing to do you know I, I remember my one of my proudest moments was being able to find a way to help have a dental implant for a player who really and um, had struggled with it, it was a congenital problem that uh, led to several teeth falling out and and uh, was able to, to help them you know get the somebody to do that work pro bono and um, man what a difference it made in that person's life Right. I mean, it, it, you know, that kind of the clear choice commercials, right. You see the person smiling and they, so it's like that it almost looks fake. Cause they're just like, I'm so happy. Right. <laughs> um, it was that moment. And, and, you know, like, I felt like I did something that really made a difference in someone's life. Uh, I remember one time the connection I had, we were, I was doing a conditioning drill. We were out running on the track and I was running, I was running marathons at the time. So it was, unfair that you know i'm making them run with me but marathons uh, as one does <laughs> and so at the time you know I'm, I'm i'm pretty fit and i'm taking we're making them meet these times and and i'm asking them questions and i'm telling them stuff about i, I remember as clear as day uh you know michelle chambers kayla goodwin running around the track and i'm talking about you've got to write the next chapter of your story you just you know this is this next lap is the next chapter of your story what do you want the ending to be like how hard are you running you know, and, and they're coming back at me with stuff and they're, they're setting times, they're doing things that they never thought was possible. Um, and I was just so inspired by their accomplishment. You know, I felt such a real connection. So there was, there were victories that didn't just happen on, on the court, but you know, um, one that stands out, like I mentioned, was beating a, a top 10 team, uh, Millsaps. Well, the interesting story is we, Swanee's on top of a mountain, middle of the winter in Tennessee, and we had a snowstorm. We had gone down mountain to eat at a Cracker Barrel for, for our pregame meal. We start coming back up the mountain, it's snowing, like just drop snowing out. And we're barely fishtailing in these rear wheel drive, you know, um, vans trying to get back up for our home game, right? And we we miss our warmups, we, we, we pull in, the kids are running to scramble to get their uniforms on. We show up about 15 minutes before game time and we beat the top 10 team in the country. You know, like it was just, that, that was such an incredible moment and, you know, I just remember those hugs and those, you know, the kids jumping up and down, just being able to watch them celebrate. Um, and, and, and where we were just an hour and a half earlier, 
thinking we're about to slide off the road, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was a cool one. Then I go to Princeton and, and talk about the difference. My first game at Princeton, I was a nervous wreck. I showed up two hours before the game. And I'm trying to figure out who's singing the national anthem, who's met the officials, are there towels in their locker rooms? Do we put sodas <laughs> on ice for them? You know, what do we, blah, 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 blah. You know, who's taking tickets? Who's doing all this stuff? You know, is the PA system set up? Do we have the mixtape? Did anybody listen to it? Do we know there's no curse words? You know, all that kind of stuff that I used to do at Swanee, they got people for it, Princeton. Right. You know, coach, you can chill out. You can just worry about the game. I was, I, I, I couldn't worry about the game. I was so used to all the other stuff. So, um, you know, so sometimes it's just those, it, it, I learned so much being a division three coach, uh, and I would never replace those times, um, or, you know, trade them away for anything, not just because what I learned, but because what I remember, you know, with the, the experiences. So, um, and, and then just kind of, you know, quickly the, you know, when, when I, did go to Baylor and, and NC State. I still was, you know, trying to think aspirationally about my career and wanting to coach at the highest level. And so as, as the head coach at Princeton, I got several interviews for BCS jobs. But one of the things that I kind of got as the feedback was, you know, you don't have BCS experience. And so I thought going to Baylor was going to give me that and that that would lead to me coaching at that level. So, you know, some of my peers, you know, friends, um, even if maybe not quite my peers, like Vic Schaefer, Gary, um, Gary Blair, Joe McEwen, you know, these were my friends, the guys I hung out with, the guys I, I you know, I wanted to be like, and I thought this was going to kind of be my ticket to doing that. But afterwards, I realized, you know what, I really kind of like the, the more um, rebuild type situation. I, mm -hmm. I felt like Maine was a calling, you know, uh, my dad was a minister and his father was a minister. So um, that's in my DNA. And, uh, I just felt like that was where I was supposed to be. And, and, um, that community needed me and I had something to offer. Hey guys, Brandon from the live period here, make sure to head on over to iTunes and rate and comment on the podcast. If you love it as much as we love making this for you, it helps us out a lot. We'd sincerely appreciate it. Um, okay. So you, when you go and take over Maine, uh, on the women's side, you know, eight wins, four wins and then that recruiting class that you jumped into hits. And now we're at 17 and then you go out and you win 23 games. You, you win the America East the next season, you win 26 games and win the America East and things are rolling. And then that next season in, in January uh, suddenly things are, are not, not rolling. And you and I, like, like I said, at the beginning, you and I have never talked about this. Um, and, uh, you know, I know a very tiny piece of the story, so I'm just going to let you just kind of tell it and, and, uh, and, and, and kind of let everybody know, I, I guess, what, uh, what this next journey for you looked like. Yeah. So, um, we, we brought in a large recruiting class, um, to replace the large recruiting class that won the, you know, 17, 23, 26 games. Right. And so as those kids were graduating, we brought in a really talented group of freshmen and, there were some opportunities to, to move on and, and take, you know, um, certainly more lucrative jobs, you know, higher profile conferences, um, had some interest, but I, I, I didn't feel right leaving those kids that had pledged to come play for us. And so, um, you know, I, I, I also, I, I kind of wanted a succession plan, you know, I wanted to kind of know where things were going. And, and I felt like I had a, a really strong um, 
alumni on our alumnus alumnae uh, on our uh, <laughs> alumna. Gosh, get get my. It's been a long time since I took Latin. Alumna. She is an one singular female alumna uh, on my staff, right? So um, anyway, I. I felt like, you know, another year or two, and then, then my family was gonna be at a stage where my kids, my girls, uh, twin girls would be starting high school and that would be the right time to move before we got into, you know, high school. And you have to think about family and, and all this stuff too. There's there's no way to separate it out. And uh, so, you know, came back thinking, you know, we're gonna keep this thing going and, and I'll have other opportunities and we'll know what the right one is at the right time. And that, uh, that December, um, it was, uh, we had actually the current point guard for Maine was on her official visit, Dorsar. She's terrific. She's from Israel. Um, was really excited about her coming to visit and we were getting ready to play Dartmouth. And I woke up, um, the dogs were being a little funny and I, I, I kind of fell, fell asleep on the couch watching film, woke up, went to take the dogs outside. And there was something outside, a fox or something, and one of the dogs just pulled through the leash, pulled his collar off. Well, when I went outside, I wasn't wearing a jacket or anything. I, you know, just wearing what I was sitting on the couch in. And, you know, Maynard, you, you can do that for about 10 minutes or something like that. And you don't, you don't always put on your jacket before you go out. You learn to be tough like that. So I, I'm out there and he gets off. Now I'm chasing my dog around the neighborhood for 30 minutes in, you know, freezing cold weather with no clothes on. Um, and I woke up the next morning and I just felt weird. And so I thought it was like, I, you know, somehow gotten a cold or that was, you know, what was going on, but I started feeling like I was tipping to the left. Felt like everything was falling. So some people talk about vertigo in terms of spinning. I felt like everything was just falling over. Right. And so, um, then I started struggling to hear out of that, my, my ear, um, it was actually my right ear. And uh, it felt like I had water in my ear, you know, like I kept trying to get the water out, like, uh, you know, and uh, tried, you know, Q-tips and drops and all sorts of stuff. Um, took, you know, talked to the team doctor, Dramamine, um, all the sort of normal things that you would do to, you know, try. And it, it, it was getting worse. And um, so eventually I, I coached that game, um, the Dartmouth game, but something wasn't right. Started going to see specialists, doctors, and the symptoms got worse and worse. So um, the you know the main symptoms at first was just like the sense of, of falling, like this equilibrium issue, and then not you know not being able to hear or having like super sensitive uh, you know hearing. Like I, things would just set me off and uh, treating it and appropriately. So the right diagnosis was to, you know, treat it as if it were some sort of viral infection and um, heavy doses of steroids were part of it. And so I was taking some, some pretty powerful drugs um, and trying to treat this. And I, I turned into an idiot, a monster. I was just, I, I had short fuse. I dealt with roid rage. I was, and I, you know, by the time we played Vermont, um, less than a month later, I 
called my AD and I said, I can't do this. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. We had not gotten any sort of diagnosis. Um, but to give you an idea, it wasn't just the, you know, the medication. It was loud sounds gave me a feeling of um, something like um, post-traumatic stress, right? So like, like an explosive, concussive um, you know, feeling. So the band started playing and I would literally freeze. Like I couldn't move my body. I couldn't think, I couldn't speak. It would just be something that would, uh, it was like almost like a fight or flight sort of response, but I didn't have the choice, right? Um, and so I was just frozen there in time. So sound, I, I got to where I couldn't be around my children. Um, things like I'd be in another room and someone would get ice out of the ice maker and I would just, it would, you know, send shockwaves through my body. And then I would also hear some really, really strange sounds. And it got to where, like when I, do you know um, the movie Jurassic Park, when they're in the, the, I think they were Ford Explorers or something like that. And there's a cup of water right. and the, you know, there's the footstep and it shakes and everything shakes. Well, that's what it was like. That's what it felt like. Everything would move that my orientation was completely screwed up. Like someone was shaking the earth um, every time I heard a sound. So it, it got really bad. And I was not, you know, I was trying to tough it out like coaches and athletes do. And, and I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have been coaching at all. Then I should have done this. I should have stepped aside earlier, but I, I, I had a, I had a really bad game coaching and was yelling and cursing, which is not me. I mean, the yelling part, sometimes I guess I do. But not <laughs> um, and I just called my ID after the game. I said, I can't do this anymore. I got to step down. And, you know, thank God he was, supportive and um not only was he supportive but the whole community was supportive um and and i, I really you know i owe so much to those people who who knew me and knew that i was going through something even though we didn't have a diagnosis and so the next three or four months were spent flying all over the country trying to see you know these great doctors to come up with what what was going on and we were looking at all sorts of blood disease you know, diseases, autoimmune diseases, um, uh, different neurological conditions. And uh, what we end up, ended up finding was I had a small hairline fracture in my skull above my inner ear, above the cochlea, which is the snail shaped, you know, if you remember from your, you know, high school mm -hmm. anatomy, you know, class or whatever, the snail shaped uh, organ that is where sound travels through. And that, so there's, there's, the ear does two things. One is, you know, your hearing and the other is your vestibular, you know, balance function. Well, that's supposed to be a soundproof chamber. So that what it was, was that, that sound was allowed to go in and out through that hole in my skull. And my skull was acting like a satellite dish, forcing all those sounds in my body back through. So those whooshing sounds that I would hear. I'd hear my heartbeat. I'd hear the blood moving through my body. I would hear my eyelids move. I would hear, if I wiggle my toes, I would hear all of that. It was like popcorn in a microwave. When I wiggle my toes, you know, it's constant noise. Um, as I heard all that stuff, in addition, sound that was going in through my ear wasn't just sound, it was coming through as a wave. So it would travel through the cochlea where it wasn't supposed to in a way that made me feel like things were moving and shifting, right? That fluid, that vestibular fluid was, was moving because of the sound. And so 
I finally got a diagnosis from the Mayo Clinic down in Jacksonville. I'd gone to the Mayo Clinic down in Minnesota. It was an audiologist who, you know, finally kind of figured things out as I was, you know, begging someone to really listen to what my symptoms were. Cause yeah, it's like, nobody's, nobody's getting it. You know, I've already right. done that. Test. I don't need more blood drawn, you know? And so um, then I went out to UCLA. I found two incredible surgeons who, you know, they're highly technical. It's almost like a, I mean, we talk about a surgical strike in the military. This was a surgical strike, you know, uh, in terms of um, having my, my brain operated on and, and they, uh, went in with incredible technology. They lifted my brain. They basically spackled in the hole and put it back down. And, um, and I woke up the next day feeling 100% better. And uh, I was in the ICU for a couple of days and, um, and then got back to kind of rebuilding my life. And, um, you know, to kind of put a, a cap to, I know what your next question is going to be is kind of like, where did I, so what happened next sort of thing? I'll go answer. And that is that, um, I didn't, I, I wanted that succession plan to work and, and it just wasn't the way I wanted it to start. And uh, Amy Vashon was doing a terrific job coaching the team. And, and she was exactly the person who I thought should be the coach moving forward. And, you know, um, as much as, you know, I, I can't take all the credit for it. I wasn't just my grooming. I just thought she was good and, and she came along. And so she was forced into that situation and she did a great job and has continued to do a great job. Yeah. Met Amy a couple of times. She's awesome. Yeah. She's terrific. And, and so I, you know, me coming back to coach the women's team just didn't feel right. And um, so I, I, I accepted a, a big reduction in pay to, to be an administrative assistant um, you know, not, a, a, I guess an administrator, not necessarily says, but assistant to the AD. And I did some fundraising stuff. Um, but but that was kind of to give me a pause because I, I did have a contract to be the women's basketball coach. I could come back. And, and so I, I had a little time to kind of think about it. And um, it was during that time that, that the AD asked me if I would try to make the same rebuild with the men's program. And um, it wasn't a, you know, instant yes. Uh, but I felt at that point, one, such a loyalty to the school and the community that stuck by me and supported me that this was a chance for me to try to, you know, stay here and do something special on the men's side. It was an acknowledgement of the transition that I had wanted to take place with Amy and the great job that she had done. Um, you know, and at, at the same time, um, you know, the, the men's coach at the time was finishing out his contract. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't replacing somebody in a way that I was getting someone fired or, you know, someone losing their job on my behalf. I, I felt like the timing was right and it, I knew it was a daunting challenge, but it was the kind of thing I, you know, I wanted to do. And I thought you know, also this was exactly who I wanted to be when I was 26 years old, you know, thinking I wanted to be a division one men's basketball coach. Well, now you get what you asked for. Right? <laughs> it's going to happen 25 years later than you thought, but you're right. going to get to do that. And, well, and so that's, that's how it happened. And I, and I remember, uh, very specifically, uh, when that happened. And, and I still, I want, I do, I still feel bad about this to this day. And I don't know if I've ever told you this. Uh, I, you know, I was relatively new to, to doing this stuff, but had been around a little bit and, and started to kind of figure out, you know, this name and that name and all that sort of thing. So when this happened, you know, we're sitting there 
figuring out, okay, you know, this, this guy would make a good choice and this guy would make a good choice. And obviously you and I didn't know each other. And uh, so they announced that, that you're, you're, you're the next, uh, the next coach there. And I went, huh? (laughs) And I, I remember thinking, I remember thinking something along the lines of like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. And it was a learning lesson for me because uh, now knowing you, um, the presumptions that we, I think, make about uh, we, we complain about the presumptions that coaches make about players. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's absolutely the presumptions that we make about not only people in our in our day to day lives, but as coaches. And that was that was a very striking one for me, because at the time I I literally thought like this is seriously what what you're going to do um and now knowing you these years later uh i apologize (laughs) for one uh but two um it it taught me it taught me a lot about really getting to know the who as opposed to just the you know very apparent resume i mean you, you know it was easy to look up your, your head coaching resume and see this rebuild or whatever, but you know, to instantly go, well, this was women's basketball. And now we're, you know, we're talking about men here and blah, 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 blah. Um, coaching is coaching. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, um, I think, I, I, I think now thinking back on it, it just uh, you know, for anybody out there listening that, that kind of, you know, looks at these different jobs and things like that, like, man, there is a lot more to it than, than what you think as far as a fit for a place and, and a fit for what you're trying to do. You know, in, in your case here, we talk about uh, character building and, and, you know, turning uh, young boys into men and, you know, those different things, a lot of the more of the philosophical questions that you and I talk about that have nothing to do with uh, your offense that I probably would never be able to learn. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and things like that. It's uh that I, I think about that moment a lot when you got that job and how wrong I was to, to have this perception of what they were doing. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Although I don't know that apologies necessarily. I mean, it, it reminds me exactly what I was saying about my, my sort of uh, chauvinism, right. Going into mm-hmm. basketball. For sure. And, yeah. You know, humbled by it. You know, it's, it's, it's because of ignorance, right? I mean, the same thing we could talk about race relations, right? There are a lot of people who, who have biases because they haven't interacted with people of different races or backgrounds. If they had, they would know that they're wrong. Right. And once you, once that's been exposed, right, you get to know somebody, you, you realize that a lot of that was, it was either superficial or, or just completely interact, uh, inaccurate. And so what I think is important though, is that for me being in that position was that I, I shouldn't act shocked or defensive about that, you know, have some grace about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I'll use a, a, an analogy here. You know, when I went to college, I went not as somebody who was taught um, or, you know, in, in, in any way, um, homophobia or, you know, it was just culturally, it was a different time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, my RA, my residence advisor, my freshman year was gay. And I had never known anyone who was gay. I just, I mean, there, I probably had, but not someone who was out. And and so I was, I was horrible, just horrible to this person, not maybe to his face. Like I had a little bit more dignity than that, but 
but you know, behind his back, I would, I'd say things and do things that I am so ashamed of. And two years later, I, I remember pulling him aside and saying, I am so sorry, you know? Um, and so I look at that and I think I had to go through that experience. I had to have both his grace, right? And the experience, the time, it, it didn't happen like this. It wasn't just, you know, someone told me and I got it, right? I had to live it and learn it and it takes time. And sometimes when we get to that point where we have enlightenment, you know, we right. forget how long it took us to get there, right? Yeah, we, no, that's true. We don't give others the same grace period to get there on their journey. Their journey isn't on our timeline. So I think, I think forgiveness and understanding and patience are qualities that we don't have enough of. That doesn't mean that we're acquiescing to things that we don't think need to improve, but we've got to, we've got to approach things instead of making somebody out as just being evil and the other side and polarizing. We've got to work. And now, you know, certainly in our country and, and at, in our role as coaches and developing young leaders, we've got to bring people together and we don't all want to be the same. We want to be different, right. you know, right. when I've had, we have different philosophies on things and we, we can completely get along. But what we trust is that we, we both want what's best for everybody involved. Right. And, and that's, you know, the, the, the key to the whole thing is uh, our differences, um, you know, is, is what makes us, like it, it makes it fun, right? Like, look at your staff. Like you're, you have, you have probably arguably the most unique staff in the country, you know, as, as far as who works. Kudos, kudos to Loyola for, for joining the club. We got to give them some props for uh, <laughs> Iron Tiny down there. They, uh, Tiny Adams, the, the second women's basketball coach now. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Just, just named down there at Loyola, Maryland. And, you know, and, and getting to know Eddie a little bit um, and, you know, I, I have, honestly, if, if you just said, you know, what was your perception of Eddie even being on that staff when, when I've, I have no idea, <laughs> like, you know, and getting to know Eddie now, like, man, I love Eddie. Eddie is fantastic. And, you know, she's, she's one of, she's not one of my favorite coaches who is a woman. She's one of my favorite coaches. Right. And, and just, you know, her attitude about things and how she perceives the world and how she goes about her job and stuff but the rest of your staff is, is very unique and, and very, you know, just, just different. And I think that, I think that's a lot of what I enjoy so much just about uh, talking to you because you talk about your staff all the time, you know, about how uh, they do this and they do that and the things that they're thinking and, and how they contribute to the program and stuff, probably more so than a lot of head coaches that I talk to. And, and it's so interesting because it is such a different staff. It's so unique. Um, and diverse and and just like it's it's cool <laughs> well, well one thing that was a common thread and part of you know this core has been with me since the beginning of coaching the men um you know we had a, we had a different dobo who's now coaching um the one of the division three teams in the state um but uh, the other four have been with me you know this is our third year together so the, we all had ties to maine before. So Kevin Reed um, played at Maine and was coaching here in Bangor and was the athletic director at Bangor Christian School. And um, so just a terrific person, wonderful husband, father, great role model. And he stayed here like he was he went to St. Thomas More, played the prep school circuit in New England and chose Maine. 
right? I mean, it was the narrative about his experience. He was a tremendous player, went over and played professionally in, in Belgium primarily and had a really good pro career and then came back to live in Maine. Um, so he, he was somebody who loved the place and, and had made it his home, uh, you know, great, great family man and, and was a great example of who I think our players should aspire to be, not only as players, but, but also as, as young men. Um, Eddie obviously had worked at Maine for me on the women's side. And so uh, I, knew, I knew everything about her in terms of all of her uh, basketball abilities. She is a brilliant uh, coach, tactician. Um, I mean, she has so many strengths in terms of the coaching, but, but she, she also knew what she was getting into. It wasn't like, you know, you, you don't really understand Maine. We, we were gonna do things differently here. And it wasn't gonna be just, you know, I didn't wanna just take the, you know, I don't know, let's say a, a Dobo from the NEC becomes your third assistant and a, a third assistant from, a, you know, a team that's maybe down in New York um, in the Mac, uh, you know, comes to Maine. Like Maine's different. We've got we've, we've got to skin cats differently up here. You know, we're not saying it's the only way for people to do things, but it's just we got to do figure out a way that works up here. And then finally, Igor Vizina, who was very successful at Lee Academy as, as a prep school coach. And um had, had been around, you know, college basketball and junior college basketball for a while, but was really successful in bringing some terrific players, some, many of whom had, had played at Maine um, as scholarship athletes. So uh, those guys, and then Matt Marshall, who is our, our uh, strength coach slash Dobo, he wears both hats, um, but he's with us, you know, pretty much full time. And he's tremendous. And he, he has like Kansas in his background and, mm -hmm. and he's, from North Carolina um, and some really, really strong pedigree, um, but had worked with our teams, knew our guys, and, and he, he's been you know, just an awesome um, part of our staff. So, um, and then I think, I think even just knowing the department and, and, and so whether it's the training room or academic support, I had such an advantage in that I didn't have to learn. It was the easiest transition. I just moved down the hall Right. I, it, it was changing teams and starting over, but but I didn't have to learn new systems. I didn't have to learn all the different people in the department. I didn't have to move my family, sell a home, buy a home, all that stuff. I, I was able to really think about what we wanted. And, um, you know, it's it's not an easy job. I, I confess that uh, we don't have some of the advantages that other places have. We are a little bit geographically isolated, uh, maybe more than a little bit. Um, we're maybe <laughs> I was like uh... <laughs> geographically isolated, but we do have advantages here. And I felt like I had, I had had the privilege of learning those through my time as the women's coach. And that gave me such a leg up. And, and so one of the things I said, I, I talked to Terry Holland. He was one of the people, you know, that I asked for counsel. Um, only a couple people knew uh, about the, the opportunity um, beforehand. So I said to him, I said, you know what? I hope that we are, and I still hope that I'm holding myself to this expectation, you know, going into year three, that as a staff and as a program, we are the most loving team in the country, right? And when I say love, I, I think also about the Old Testament version of love, which really kind of means loyalty, like love your neighbor means be loyal to your neighbor. Um, and and that's, that's what I hope we are, you know, like, um, sometimes we used to joke and say we could win a national championship in compliance, right? <laughs> I, I hope we can. I hope we can win a national championship in character, yeah. and and if if we're doing that, 
you know, I think the wins will eventually take care of themselves. We're trending in the right direction. You can even see it in our practices. Sure. We're building culture. But, but we're, we're doing it by stressing the things that matter so much more than putting a ball in a hoop, you know? And uh, I, I'm really proud of the, the progress we made. And I probably don't tell my guys that enough. So, you know, I'll take this opportunity just to say how proud I am of the guys who have chosen our program. Um, we talk a lot about who we are and also who we are becoming. And I'm really excited to see who they become. Coach, um, your, your story is, is amazing that you're, you're still here. Um, I wanted to know, what, what were you thinking about during all those months? I know I've read about, you know, you thought about dying. You, you thought about those things. Is there things that, you, that really hit home for you during the, that time and then what you've taken away from that time that you've, you've changed your life forever? Like, hey, these three things I'm forever going to do now that I should have done before, but that changed my life, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, admittedly, lately I've been thinking, okay, if I've forgotten some of those lessons, the further you get away from those life-changing experiences, maybe it's my own vanity started to think, okay, I've got this figured out, you know? Um, it was so humbling, so humbling. And and I was I was depressed. I I understand people who go through um, suicidal tendencies when you're when when everything you kind of felt like you were working for and hoping for is taken away from you, it really takes a lot to redefine, you know, how you live. And so, um, you know, the the great news for me is that, you know, I'm not like some people are maybe double amputees or things like that that really have a you know impact on their life. My handicap is that I'm deaf in my right ear. Um, I deal with some. Uh, you know, tinnitus issues. I've got that ringing sound that I kind of constantly deal with compared to what I was going through. And that's nothing, you know? So um, I, I also just, I, I, I developed, I hope a better sense of empathy, you know, because it's just so hard to communicate. It was so hard for me to talk to people about what I was going through. People would listen to me and they would, you know, probably still do look at me like I had a third eye. Right. And they're just like, you know, you, this guy's crazy. Um, but it was real for me. And, and so to be able to, to listen to someone who's struggling with something or maybe having a hard time articulating what it is they're going through and to have the patience and grace and love to, to, to hear them through and to stick with them. Um, I hope I'm better at that than I was, you know, before the experience. Um, you know, there's some other things that, you know, I feel like getting through COVID this, this whole period finding the bright side, knowing that you're going to be okay, having a sense of, of, um, uh, yeah, of, of hope and optimism probably comes from surviving those experiences. You know, it, sometimes you don't learn the lesson until you're able to look back, right? As you're going through it, life is really, really hard. And then you get to the other side and there's that pause, right? That moment where you kind of learn, you can reflect back and say, okay, what did I learn from that experience? And then apply it. Um, sometimes you get back into the, the weeds a little bit and, and it's hard to, to have that vision. But, but, but I hope that each time you have a little bit better skill set, you know, to handle those things. And especially as a coach and as a leader, I hope that I'm, you know, better equipped to do, you know, deal with those things. Um, Thomas, I got a question for you, right? Because this is something that, that I was talking to a friend of mine, Nathan Whitaker, who um, has written a lot of books for like Tim Tebow and um, 
Tony Dungy and a you know, terrific uh, writer and speaker. So he, he came up and spent some time with us a year ago and we were catching up on the phone the other day and talking about things. And I said, you know what? I realize now more than, than ever before that in order to be what I need to be, I've got to spend at least 60% of my time on me. Um, and that's probably something that, that kind of kind of answer your question. Like even the fact that I've learned to play guitar and that I've got something that's a distract, that's a you know stress release, that I've gotten back in shape. I've lost 75 pounds since all those steroids and gained all that weight. And I'm able to get out and, you know, run 20, 25 miles a week or whatever. Um, that's, those are things that, that make a, make me a better coach. And because, you know, we talk all the time and this is what I want to get your opinion on. We, we say as coaches things about our players, but we don't hold ourselves to the same standards. Right. So how many times have I gone into practice and said, our best player has to be our hardest worker. Our best player has to be, you know, our best communicator. Our best player has to be the guy with the best attitude, the most positive attitude. I got to be our best player. I'm the leader. So I'm, I'm just curious, have you had any of those experiences where you've kind of found yourself on the court and you realized, hey, it really isn't about them. I've got to be the change. I've got to Gandhi this and, you know, be that guy that's setting the tone. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I tell Brandon this uh, off air all the time, like my experiences in life, I truly believe have helped me become a better coach and a better person for my kids, whether they be NBA players or a fifth grade kid. You know, I've, I had major back surgery. I got through it. It took everything in me to fight through it, to be able to play. I went through a, a crazy divorce. You know, I've, I've had my mom had cancer. I live far away from my family. I've traveled the world. I lost out on a big contract. Um, I, I, I played the piano. I, I'm an intelligent guy. I like to read books. I, I like to study, you know, all those things. I got to make sure I'm on top of and in the stories of my life that have helped me be able to explain to anybody when anybody comes at me with a story or help or anything, I think I can hit them with, you know, a, a jack of all trades, master of none type mindset. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's one of those things I didn't, I didn't think about that when I was younger, but now that I can hit people with everything really, because I've been through so much. And, and like you said, most life's hard, man. <laughs> a lot of the stuff I just told you was hard times in my life, but it's made me a better person. And I've been able to really relate to people and they can trust me. Um, and, and, you know, even, even mopping the floor or sweeping the floor at a gym, you know, kids like, what are you doing? Like, you can never be afraid to pick up a broom, you know, oh, you don't have to do that. I'm like, yeah, you do, you know, and, and just instilling that, the, the confidence and the work ethic. Because right. um, how can you ask them to do it if you're not willing to? I mean, 100%. you know, if Coach Barron is asking his team to, you know, the hardest worker that, you know, give me the sprints, give me the whatever. And he just kind of comes in and half asses everything like, well, who's going to, who's going to buy into that? You know? Yeah. Ho hopefully that answers the question, yeah. Coach. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. You know, I, I think about, uh, you know, that um, the guy who wrote, uh, what uh, was it? Pound the Stone, like that's his latest book or whatever, you know, living in a janitor's closet out in a high school in, you know, California to try to get started, former, you know, soccer player at Duke and, you know, did everything sometimes you get on, on those hard times, you know, and, um, but, but they are, you know, the old adage, it either kills you or makes you stronger. You know, if you're still here, it made you stronger, you know, get out and take advantage of it. So, 
Um, and that's an interesting, like, you know, for the guests that we've had on here, uh, for the most part, there's, there's an aspect to their story that's very unique and different than, than most people's, but the, the prevailing trend is how that life experience, uh, you know, put them in a position to not only help others to share that story, to convey it in such a way that is either inspiring or, uh, you know, causes them to, to rethink, think some things in their life. And that's, and, but everybody's, uh, has been different, right? Like, um, you know, and so that's, that's, what's been a lot of fun about this is, is hearing from different people, you know, Alex Awumi's story, uh, about, uh, it being in Libya when the war breaks out and how inspirational that is and has affected his life and, and your story with your, your medical issues and how that's, uh, inspires other people to, uh, to, to do things that maybe they didn't think they could come back from or whatever. And, but everybody's, everybody's story being so different, but I, the, 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 the humanity that is in all of those stories is kind of that common thread that, that we can all appreciate. Well, I got, I got a question for you, but for real, for one of the first things I'll say before I do that, just you're talking about going through those experiences. You know, there, there's some support groups on Facebook and things like that for people who have the condition that I have and being able to be on there prior to my surgery and talk to people who went through this and, and to hear people who got through helped me have hope. And I, and since my story became pretty public and, and there was a lot of, uh, you, know, you know, media coverage about it. And people, you know, Google the condition, a lot of times stories or videos about my story come up and people find me and they ask, you know, they, they come up with a similar diagnosis and, and ask about things. And it's such a blessing to be able to talk about being on the other side. Hey, you'll get through this. This is, this, you know, um, these are the things to look for. This is what I learned. These are maybe some questions you might want to ask. But just to be that, that, to have the roles reversed and that I can be for um, those current patients, the same thing that others were for me. And that was a, a beacon of hope. And so, um, but, but the, you know, talking about the uniqueness of how we get there, right? That's completely the, you know, the Brandon Goble story. I mean, you're, you're another one of those guys. I mean, you, you know, your whole way of getting into college athletics is such a, a unique story and you're building a business out of something that you're passionate about and leaving the corporate world with insurance is, is impressive. But not only that, you're telling unique stories because you're talking about people who didn't get there in what we consider a conventional way. But, but what you point out all the time is that some of the most successful people, not some, maybe even a lot, a, a strong percentage of the most successful people in basketball got there from an unconventional way. It is definitely, it's like the people who just, you, you can't lose a race that you never quit in, right? right? Just extend the finish line to somewhere further. That's how I was able to be, you know, a, a moderately competitive runner. I was slow as Christmas. I could just keep going, right? So that's why I had to get into running marathons because that was the only way I could come up with a time that was something I could actually brag about, right? So my, my, my 40 time never looked good. My 100 time never looked good. My fastest mile never looked that good, right? But 26.2 of them, you know, I can <laughs> right? So, um, you know, I think that was, that's kind of the Juco story, right? Is that, that, that these guys make it because they don't quit, because they find a solution, because they keep, they persevere. It's not because they're handed things. It's, it's not because they're gifted things. They're not necessarily born into things. It's this, they keep chasing, they keep working. And I, so I, I'm curious, 
Brandon, about that from your perspective? Like, how do you, you know, what's the, what's your motivation when you, when you post something about Jimmy Butler, right? And, and most people say, Jimmy Butler, you know, Miami Heat, and they think about, you know, Minnesota or Chicago, and they think about Marquette. Mm-hmm. But you're like, hey, before Marquette, there was Juco. Yeah. No, you know, that, that we don't, we don't naturally make that assumption. Yeah, I think I think what's fascinating about you know the the world that I came into in basketball and and then have expanded that then beyond junior college to a lot of the things that we do overseas or just a lot of the relationships that I really try and cultivate is what what makes it fascinating is finding people where um, there there is a point in their life where the easiest thing to do would have been to quit, right? Because I. I I, I don't have by any means, uh, you know, the depth and breadth of some of the struggles of, of a lot of the people that we talk to. But I mean, I for sure dealt with depression in, in my job. And you and I have talked about that where, um, you know, it's just kind of like this suffocating, trying to find a way out, thinking of, you know, 30 years from now, I'm going to be done in the working world and I'm going to look back and I feel like I'm not going to have accomplished anything. Right. And so the easiest thing to do, honestly, would have been to just, you know, keep making a bunch of money and in a thing that I hated and just get through the day and, and whatever. Um, And, and so, you know, I, I find it fascinating to, to really kind of um, cultivate those relationships with, with people where there's just something different. Uh, about them. And, and, and that junior college story is what I guess probably resonated the most. And I mean, you look at, at the, the, the Juco advocate logo, the, Tom, the, the Solomon Heine uh, mm-hmm. story, you know, which we, we did in one of our episodes here. I mean, you want to talk about finding a guy where there was about 45 times in his life where it would have been easier to just quit. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether it was in high school or, you know, whether it was just in the military or whether it was after the military or go quit and do this or whatever. I mean, shoot, even through his entire college basketball experience, the number of times on the phone where, you know, he and I are talking through things and you can hear in his voice that he knows the easiest thing for him to do at that moment would have been to quit. Uh, and then he just, he just wouldn't. And so, you know, that's, that's been a, that's been a super interesting thing to see where, uh, you know, I didn't know uh, a lot of the things that I had in me, but the reason I was able to find a lot of the things that I had in me was because of people like Solomon Heine, where, you know, I see what he has in him and what he was able to accomplish. And I look at it and go, well, shoot, my circumstances aren't that bad. Like, you know, if he can, it's kind of one of those things, like if they can do it, I can do it, Uh, you know, sort of deal. So, you know, the other thing that, that, I think of a lot about with you, Brandon, um, and we may have spoken about this specifically before or not, I can't remember, but, but you, you know, you've spoken to my team and we, you know, like everybody, we did those weekly Zooms and brought in guest speakers and you were gracious enough to talk to the team. Um, but you were trying to tell your story. And one of the things you said was, you know, I didn't set out to create a business. I set out to help people. Right. I was just I I started out clipping up some games because there was a guy who I wanted to help get an opportunity. I believed in the kid and I wanted to help him. And I just did that. And after doing it once, I thought I could do it for somebody else. And, it, you know, instead of the way that so many people approach things is like, what can you do for me? Like we want to network so that we have influence. Right. We think that, you know, and, and that's where I was 
you know, early in my coaching career, I was trying to work all the camps in the summer and get to know people. And I'm not saying there's something that, that that's wrong, but I just wanted to know people because of what they could do for me. Right. And, you know, that was kind of what we were taught to do. I mean, it was almost like that was the way you moved up in, in, in coaching. You know, you had to be part of a tree, you know, you had to be yeah. some influence had to be the one pulling you up instead of just making your own way. And you've created this entirely new niche. Um, and, and like we've talked about before, you didn't look at what other people were doing and say, okay, I'm going to try to, you know, I'm going to try to outsell Coca-Cola with my own, you know, brand of soda. You, you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be Snapple. I'm going to do something that nobody else is making and, and, and find a different way into, into the market. And well, it is funny. You mentioned the networking thing because it, yeah, I mean the, the prevailing, uh, I think approach to, to networking is always like, how can I, you know, get these people to help me. And, and what I have found through this is generally like, if you figure out what you can do for other people, the rest of it takes care of itself. Tommy Strine hit, hit me this morning. He hits me probably almost every other day at minimum. Uh, he's uh, he's an assistant at Chicago state. Now he was offs down at Lamar and he asks, you know, is there anything I can help you with? Is there anything you need? Yeah. Like he doesn't, he doesn't generally ask me for anything. Like, you know, Hey, I need this. I need that, whatever. Um, you know, I'm, I'm usually reaching out to him saying, Hey, like, Hey, you should look at this and you should, whatever. He's constantly hitting me saying, what can I do for you? What can I, what can I help you with? Um, you know, whatever. And, and I haven't even like had anything for him yet. He just, he just wants to, to, I think he, he knows that, uh, I, I know that he is always available if I need something. And it, and it's funny because that's a backwards approach to usually how, um networking works yeah absolutely well i mean that i guess i mean not to be too uh philosophical you know me though um <laughs> the difference right between being transformative and transactional right yeah. there are a lot of people in the in the you know kind of recruiting business right scouting services and things like that and it's transactional i'm gonna you're gonna pay me whatever 500 bucks a year and i'm gonna send you out this report and you know that's it right we're all yep. done, right? I, I, I think what you've done is you've said, how can I help someone's life become better, right? Not, not about what, what are we going to give and, and, you know, but how can we grow the pie? Um, and, you know, so even like, you know, as we were talking before, you know, your way of meeting Thomas, right? All that, all these things kind of happen organically from, from, from putting others first. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's still a tough profession for that because there's so, you know, there's so much pressure to win the, you know, the absurdity of choosing a profession where by definition, half of you are failures. <laughs> yeah. Half of you are losers, right? Every year, half yeah. of the entire profession is losers. Right. And then another 25% aren't meeting expectations. So they're failures, right? You got losers, you got they're failures. not successful enough. Yeah. Very, very small group of people. Yeah. Right. Um, who are considered successes in our profession. Um, so we've, you know, we've got to come up with a better way of defining what success really means. It can't just be about the public. It really has to be about what, what Thomas was saying, those, those relationships, those, those conversations with kids off the court, those, you know, being invited to someone's wedding, you know, five, 10 years after they graduated. Um, you know, I, I, I tease my, my guys all the time. I say, you know, I, I hope you consider naming your, your, Firstborn son after me, and then, 
and then wisely choose not to, you know, <laughs> I hope you at least consider it, you know? So. Right. Well, coach, uh, this has been great. Uh, really appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, this, the, the, this time that we're in this, this world that we're in right now, you know, I, I do hope you, you, um, uh, know that that I sincerely appreciate the conversation we had today, but the conversations that you and I have all the time because it uh, it's it's more than basketball. It's more than uh, you know the specifics of putting a ball through a hoop. And and so I appreciate you today. I appreciate you as always. Well, thank you, and I, I echo that back to you, Brandon and, and Thomas. What you guys and and your your um, you know coworkers do under your umbrella right is, is help other people and and uh, I admire that about you and I'm, I'm happy and, and proud to call you a friend and um, you know look forward to a time when we can get together in person do a little fishing right uh, Thomas Thomas is in I know that up here get you out in, in the woods in the, in the summer to maybe uh, on the boat and uh, um, you know see a moose all those great things that we get to do up here during the summers awesome I love awesome. it I appreciate Thanks, you my coach. friend great good to see all you right. guys be good coach